Hello, everybody, and welcome to the American Shoreline Podcast. This is Peter Ravella, co-host of the show. And this is Tyler Buckingham, the other co-host. Tyler, throughout American history, the U.S. military has been a leader in many transformational uh, social actions, uh, both in terms of race and the role of women in the workplace. Uh, And the United States military continues to be a leader now on climate change. We've got a great show to talk about what's going on with the United States Department of the Navy today on the issue of climate change. Well, Peter, I love the way you're introducing this, and uh, it is it is true, and we have talked about it before, and specifically the role that the Navy has played on the American shoreline all over the years, yeah. uh, going back to the colonial times, and, and be it in uh, wartime or peacetime, the role that the Navy has played socially on Americans and throughout American history is uh, absolutely a point to talk about. And of course, we're going to do that on this show, but we're going to look to the future, not to the past. That's right. Uh, And on the issue of climate change, the United States Navy has stepped up with a new climate action plan for 2030. And uh, Peter, we have an absolutely fantastic guest today to talk about this report. We do indeed. Joining us today on the American Shoreline podcast is Assistant Secretary of the Navy, Meredith Berger. She is the Assistant Secretary for Energy Installations and the Environment. Uh, She joined the Department of the Navy in August 2021 after her Senate confirmation. She was nominated by the President of the United States, Joe Biden. That's pretty cool. Very cool. Senate confirmation. Absolutely. Absolutely. Secretary Berger has had a distinguished public service career, Tyler, uh, educated at Vanderbilt University, a Master of Public Administration from Harvard University's Kennedy School of Government, and a law degree uh, from Nova Southeastern University as well. She has served as Florida's chief financial officer. She's had roles in the Department of the Navy under the Obama administration, a distinguished career, and a real professional for us to talk to today. Well, we have a lot to cover, and I am just so thrilled to be talking to Secretary Berger and uh, talking about this interesting report. There's a lot that's going on here. How will the Navy lead on climate change going forward? Really looking forward to it, ladies and gentlemen. But first, a quick word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and Coastal News Today are brought to you by Geodynamics, an NV5 company specializing in providing accurate surveys of complex coastal environments worldwide. Driven by marine geology, coastal science, and remote sensing, our researchers use the latest technology to provide meticulous data products to support our clients and answer their toughest questions. Geodynamics carefully designs and executes a variety of hydrographic, geophysical, sub-bottom, and near-shore surveys using our fleet of customized vessels and sensor configuration. You can find us at nv5geospatial.com. Geodynamics, delivering solutions, improving lives. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter for our latest updates from around the American shoreline. Like what you're hearing and want to support the network? Sponsorship packages are now available. Go to coastalnewstoday.com slash advertising to learn more. 
Secretary Berger, thank you for joining us on the American Shoreline podcast to share your insights about climate change in the United States Department of the Navy. Thank you so much. Oh, thank you both for having me. And it's a good thing it's radio because I am blushing with that kind introduction. (laughs) Well deserved, I have to say. Uh, we mentioned in the intro, the United States Navy, in earlier this month of June, uh, released Climate Action 2030, the Department of the Navy's plan on how to approach the climate change challenges for the, for the Navy. Uh, Secretary of the Navy, Carlos de Toro, said in the introduction to that report that climate change is one of the most destabilizing forces of our time and said that climate was going to be the focal point of his tenure at the, uh, as the Secretary of the Navy. Uh, Secretary Berger, why is this such a prominent issue in the Navy's thinking going forward? It's prominent because we are constantly thinking about how to be better warfighters and making sure that we are considering the climate threat in everything that we do helps us to ensure that we are always becoming better warfighters um, and doing the best that we can, both the Commandant of the Marine Corps and the Chief of Naval Operations, in addition to the Secretary of the Navy, as you noted, has said that this is a warfighting imperative. And so when we talk about warfighting at the Department of the Navy, um, we're also talking about mission and the ability to meet that mission for our sailors and our Marines to be able to do all um, that we are asked to do. And one of the really um, important and consequential impacts that we're seeing as we see climate change uh, take place is that we're seeing an increased demand on that mission set. It's widening. Uh, There are more requirements for our sailors and our Marines to respond around the globe. And we're seeing increased storms, uh, increased sea level rise, increased saltwater intrusion. Um, Some very tangible impacts um, that happen as a result are decreased access to some key resources that we need, like fresh water um, and food and other resources um, that are the things that cause problems in in the global environment that that cause um, some of the most pressing humanitarian and disaster relief response uh, requirements out there. Um, This also is a place where because of these increased stressors in the environment, it's more challenging for our sailors and our Marines to be able to respond to this increased mission set. Um, So at the department, this is about readiness and What readiness means is the ability of sailors, Marines, and really across the department to include our civilians, um, to have that ability to train, um, equip, predict, and execute all of the things that we as a nation ask our military to do. And so um, when we talk about readiness, we say here that uh, climate readiness is mission readiness. And that's what we're driving towards in the plan that you um, noted. So uh, Climate Action 2030 is the Department of Navy's uh, strategy to take action in this decisive decade for climate change. We're building a climate-ready force. 
and we're doing that by ensuring that we are reducing the climate threat and increasing our resilience against that threat. Wow. Well, what a big uh, assignment here. Big, big job. Big job. And I mean, intuitively, it makes sense to me. And, you know, I've, I've, in our glowing, <laughs> in our introduction, we talked about the Navy and just how uh, uh, far ahead the Navy oftentimes is. And one of my favorite stories from the Navy are the fleet problems, Peter. Are, do you, I think we've talked about the fleet problems that the Navy engaged in as a department uh, back before World War II, like from the 19-teens to the 1930s, let's say. Mm -hmm. And these were like exercises where the Navy would practice uh, various fleet maneuvers and hypothetical invasions and, you know, threats to the Panama Canal. You know, back in those days, this was, yeah. this was the American, uh, this was what people concerned themselves with in the Navy. But, uh, Meredith, when we're talking about climate change, so many of these fleet problems, they were hypothetical. They were thinking about Japan and they were thinking about, you know, Britain and, and various colonies in the Pacific. Um, but I, I know that what we're thinking about climate change, this can be kind of hypothetical. Are there any real examples that come to mind when you are in a meeting with your colleagues, senior leadership in the Navy, that you say, hey, this is an example of a climate change threat to our warfighting ability that stands out in, in y'all's minds as decision makers? Yes, I, I was listening to you talk, and as you uh, mentioned some hypothetical challenges that uh, the Navy used to exercise on, um, we are facing a very tangible reality right now with uh, some some pretty real impacts. And so uh, one of the, the critical places that we operate in, um, I mentioned some of our humanitarian assistance and disaster relief, which is... Um, us as, a, as naval forces going to respond. Um, but I'd like to address another place that um, is really seeing the impact and, and one that perhaps isn't as readily apparent um, but critically important to our operations, um, and that is at our shorelines, at our installations. Uh, that is the place where our sailors and our Marines are training learning, living, preparing, and executing a lot of mission. And so as we see stronger storms, as we see sea levels rising, as we see these types of impacts, um, that is an operational impact that is affecting the way that we are able to execute mission, um, a way that we're able to be ready, as we were talking about earlier. And so a few examples that I'll point you towards are both um, on the east and west coast. One on the east coast, a Marine Corps base is Paris Island. Uh, there is a lot of flooding. Uh, that is a place where there is uh, low-lying land um, and, and high-rising water, and that is impactful to that installation. On the west coast, the uh, Naval Base San Diego is another place that is critically threatened by the impacts of climate change. Um, and I'll point out that this is something that is happening around the globe and a place that we're seeing partners impacted as well. Uh, very recently, Secretary Del Toro went and visited Fiji, where uh, similarly because of rising sea levels and because of saltwater intrusion, there are towns, uh, places that people uh, have been living 
their history and they have had to shift where they are living and where they are occupying because of that flooding, because of that intrusion. Uh, we are seeing similar impacts as sea level rises come here um, against our installations. It is uh, something that is impactful, it is operational, and it is changing where we can be and how we can operate. Mm. Well, I think uh, readers of Coastal News Today and regular listeners to the American Shoreline Podcast Network are pretty familiar with the sea level rise challenges in the Norfolk, Virginia area, home of the Norfolk yep. Naval Base, Tyler. And uh, there's a lot of work being done. But I think the thing we want our listeners to understand is because the Navy's facilities are obviously located mostly on the shoreline, uh, climate change is a real threat. Sea level rise is a real threat to the function of these facilities that are so critical to our national defense. Uh, when you look at a problem like climate change, Secretary Berger, and you're just taking an example of Nor the Norfolk Naval Base, uh, it's got to be a, a huge challenge to figure out how to address that effectively. Um, how is the Navy approaching these challenges? The Navy is approaching these challenges through various uh, different methods because like most things, uh, it is it is interdisciplinary and interdependent as we think about what actions we can take and what responses are there. And so um, I, I am glad that you also mentioned uh, Norfolk. I, I wanted to make sure to mention some of our other areas as well, but understanding that your listeners are, are quite familiar with Norfolk, this is a place that not only the... Um, the base is seeing these impacts, but also the community is seeing these impacts. And so what we have found an opportunity to do when we have our bases in communities, uh, that is a serious investment in terms of a partnership and being part of that community when we are there. And so we're finding opportunities to partner um, when it comes to energy use, increasing, creating resilience, um, and also making sure that we are sharing loads and reducing um, overall impact to the community and uh, the energy um, and the grid. And then also making sure that as we cross the fence line that we're partnering. So programs like uh, DSIP, um, which is uh, the Defense Critical Infrastructure Program, gives us the opportunity to find um, some efficiencies to combat uh, climate change and other impacts, not only for um, ourselves, but also for the surrounding communities so that we're really working together to uh, make sure that we're combating that. Specifically, uh, when it comes to rising uh, sea levels and flooding that we're seeing at Norfolk, um, it is making sure that we are building up seawalls against um, that water intrusion. As we make new construction, it is building to higher floodplain levels and also making sure that we are lifting things out of those levels where possible. And so it really is um, a comprehensive and uh, far spanning approach to make sure that we're taking advantage of uh, every authority, every opportunity, every partnership, and so that we are not only helping ourselves, but also uh, working with the community um, that we are so intertwined um, with and a part of. I think that's the way to do it. Uh, it's a combination. You can't just fence it off and, you know, one side of the line is protected and the other side isn't. Then you'd be on a little island out there eventually and 
that's not going to work very well. But I, I would like to just looking at the big picture here, uh, I, I am so pleased that uh, the Department of Defense and the Department of the Navy in particular is addressing climate change and the threats that that mean to our national security. Um, what is the history of this, though, uh, Secretary Berger? How, for how long has there been uh, within the Navy, let's just say, a, an effort to think about climate change as a strategic, uh, perhaps a threat? And you know, how long has this been going on? How long have, have people been thinking about it? Well, uh, one, one of the driving uh, forces around the naval forces is that we operate on or near the sea. And so um, this is something that has just very naturally been a part of the Department of the Navy so our, and our Naval Forces um, history and practice. Um, from very early on, the Navy used innovation to meet some of its energy challenges and advance uh, to do um, what we talked about at the beginning of our conversation, um, meet mission, be ready, and be the best warfighters. And uh, that has helped to maintain maritime dominance for our naval forces uh, throughout time as well. So uh, briefly, we started out with uh, sail and wind and then transitioned to coal, followed by fuel, and then in some cases nuclear. But at every point along the way, um, the reason was to find efficiency, to make sure that we were meeting that mission, meeting those objectives, and executing in the most efficient and effective way possible um, as we engaged in our various requirements. Um, so that is something that is our primary driver for uh, thinking about meeting our objectives in Climate Action 2030. We continue to meet uh, challenges with innovation to create opportunities. A good recent example of that is at Marine Corps Logistics Base Albany, uh, recently announced as the first net zero energy base uh, in the entire Department of Defense, which is, is quite an accomplishment for that base. Um, in 2009, the Secretary of the Navy put out some very forward-leaning energy goals, and much to the credit of the leadership at this installation, over the course of more than a decade through leadership and other transitions, they stayed dedicated to making sure that they achieved this milestone and uh, recently announced it just last month. This is a more recent example of how energy goals uh, combined with partnerships and innovative resources can really help uh, make a difference in terms of impact and opportunity. It also saved a bunch of money. So all around a win-win-win um, and a indicator of more of what's to come from the department. Well, it's a it's a, a forward-thinking and I think great report, well worth the read for our listeners out there. The Climate Action 2030 plan is what it is. There are two broad performance goals, Secretary Berger, in the plan. Uh, one which we've have, have have touched on already: the ability to fight effectively under changing conditions, the first responsibility of the U.S. Navy as a national security force, of course. The second one, uh, reducing climate threats. In particular, the plan talks about reductions in greenhouse gas emissions from operations of the U.S. Navy and the Marine Corps. 
and reaching a net zero emissions target by 2050. Uh, that's an aggressive goal, uh, given, Tyler, how much fuel the United States Navy and the Marine Corps require. Everything you can think of. They operate a lot of machinery. A lot of machinery. A lot of heavy machinery. A lot of airplanes, Let me tell you something. Ships, if you want to get trucks. A, uh, a big vessel going 30-something knots, yeah. you're going to need some energy. That's, that's a lot of horsepower. It's a lot uh, of horsepower. Secretary, Navy, uh, Secretary Berger, when you're thinking about this greenhouse uh, gas emission reduction target, uh, that's got to that's be uh, a difficult thing to contemplate given the structure of our forces. Uh, how do you tackle a problem like that? It is, it is a difficult one, but if it were easy, we, we would have done it already and be in a far better position. So that's incentive to keep going towards the goal. As we think about how to meet some of these ambitious reduction goals, one very important point is that we are not alone here. And so it is very much an ecosystem in which we are all contributing. And so some of the goals that you noted are ones that not only the Department of Navy have, but the entire Department of Defense, as well as across the uh, federal government. And so we're working very purposely together um, to make sure that we are reaching these objectives, both individually and collectively. Um, this is a place where, as many have noted, climate change as an existential crisis. It is something that is driving action around the world. So another layer to that ecosystem I mentioned where we're seeing all of those contributions that are going to drive us uh, towards meeting some of these critical uh, game changer objectives in the next decade. Uh, you note very rightfully that we have a lot of big platforms, and those platforms take uh, a lot of energy to make sure that they are uh, driving and doing their mission. And so as we think about how to tackle this challenge from that perspective, it is warfighting. It is mission that drives um, the way that we approach it. But there's a lot of opportunity there. We're working hand-in-hand hand with uh, industry to make sure that as they're thinking through advanced technologies and alternative fuels and ways to create more efficiency around the fuel that we do use, that it's meeting our requirements um, in addition to meeting our objectives. Right. And so we're excited to find these opportunities um, to explore what we are able to do and we've already seen some efficiencies that show that we're headed in the right direction. One example is with our hybrid electric drives. We've seen as much as 20% increased efficiency uh, in terms of how we are able to operate. And more broadly, and what we're driving towards is reducing that dependency in addition to reducing that contribution to greenhouse gases. Mm -hmm. We are better warfighters when we are able to stay on station longer, when we are able to reduce that logistics tail, um, and even better when we're able to create our own energy out in the field. And so this is the type of thinking that we're doing to make sure that we are reducing those contributions, that we are making a better environment in which we're able to operate, but all at the same time meeting our requirements, our mission, staying ready, and making sure that our warfighters are equipped to fight and, if necessary, win. Yeah. 
Well, it's an exciting, what an exciting job and a responsibility that you have. Uh, I, I like that you pointed out that the, the Navy has successfully worked its way through uh, propulsion uh, fuel transitions before, as you said, from wind to coal and then to fossil fuels and into nuclear. This isn't a new problem that the Navy's tackled. Uh, no, and you know what? I, I know that probably every single time that they, that they make that transition, I bet that there are... It's a process. What can I say? There's there's going to be people, the old timers, you're like, don't take my wind away. <laughs> That's right. That coal is not reliable. <laughs> you know, and, and then the coal wins out and says, hey, it's great. And you, regardless of the direction the wind's blowing, you can still mm-hmm. operate, which yep. is uh, useful. Yep, yep. You got to make the transition. And it's interesting right now, uh, as you mentioned, Secretary Berger, this is not uh, something the Navy is pursuing alone. The International Maritime Organization uh, is pushing very hard for transitions and shipping technology and fueling uh, for carbon uh, uh, carbon dioxide emission reduction. Uh, there's been recent developments, even in this year, ships fueled by ammonia, Tyler, who are just coming into yeah. commercial practice. There is a reemergence of sail technology in yeah. some transportation and hydrogen. corridors and hydrogen. So we are starting to see this effort. Uh, from the International Maritime Organization and organizations like uh, the Aspen Institute, which is taking a leading role in the transition uh, in shipping uh, fueling. Uh, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a big job, and uh, it's great to see the Navy getting, getting out in front of it. I got to tell you, one of the things that surprised and pleased me in the report was the focus on the Navy's role in handling uh, uh, shoreline change and how to respond to erosion and threats to the facilities. And uh, a pretty good section of this report is devoted to living shorelines and other natural-based systems of, of uh, shoreline stabilization. Uh, what is the, what is this, uh, the Navy's thinking on, on that kind of what would be considered more greener or environmental solutions to this problem? We think this is a good thing. Uh, and so there are, as you note, a lot of opportunities for nature-based climate resilience. I grew up in South Florida, and so I am very familiar with mangroves being the protectors of our shorelines, especially as some of those really tough hurricanes come in. Um, as we look for uh, the construction of some living shorelines using um things like mangroves, but also oyster beds, sand, rock, um, some of the already available resources that are there. Um, nature knows what to do. We just need to make sure that we are using that asset to the, the best of our ability. And so especially in the southeast uh, where we see a lot of those impacts, um, either from strength in storms or um, heightened sea level rise, we are uh, working on some coastal resiliency projects. And so um, we're using programs like um, REPI, so um, Readiness Environmental Protection Integration, uh, to make sure that uh, we are partnering again um, with the communities that we're in um, to take into account the environment that is there, um, contemplate that as part of our readiness so that uh, we are using every aspect of the environment, of um, that nature-based resilience, all, all of the assets that are out there to make sure that we are doing the best that we can in terms of using that as an asset for protection and adaptation and mitigation. 
No doubt about it. That's uh, definitely what it's going to take. Uh, and, you know, in, in this report, there are these lines of effort, which I just really love uh, that term. And I understand that um, these, these are kind of coming from a broader Department of Defense uh, kind of guidance. But uh, Secretary Berger, could you take us through uh, the lines of effort as outlined in this report and maybe comment briefly on each of them and, and what they are, uh, what their intended uh, meaning is. Absolutely. And I would say an overall driver for each of these lines of effort is uh, opportunity and innovation. As you were talking before about um, there's a process to go through as as you evolve, as you find um, new opportunities and approaches. I wish that I knew who to attribute this quote to, but um, there is a saying that uh, the Stone Age didn't end because they ran out of stones. And so we are just <laughs> looking for the next thing at every opportunity to make sure that we are uh, staying with, if not anticipating, our, our needs. And so... The first is climate-informed decision-making, and as we think about that, that is as much our people as the way that we resource, and so we are providing and developing educational opportunities for the people across the Department of Navy so that they have an understanding of what it means to do things like mitigation adaptation. What is resilience? How does this factor into our everyday actions? There is no part of the department that will go untouched. Um, in that same vein, uh, resourcing is the best indicator of intent, and so making sure that we are matching our resources to what we intend to uh, produce and achieve over the course of the fiscal year over the course of um, the five years that make up our FIDEP. And so we are looking at how to make sure we are tagging and accounting for our resourcing as we prioritize these issues um, and objectives. Uh, training and equipping for climate resilience. This is working with um, our research development and acquisition to make sure that our sailors and Marines and civilians have the tools that they need uh, to be able to get out there and achieve all that we ask of them. So this is putting in those requirements at the front end, working hand in hand with industry and making sure that what we are putting in as requirements will help us to achieve those objectives in an operational environment. Uh, we spoke briefly about uh, resilient built-in natural infrastructure, but this is where we make sure that if we are building new, we are building resilient. Um, that resilience includes not only climate resilience, but also making sure that we have the security that comes with resilience so that when we operate independently, uh, we, are we have a reliable source of power and also one that no one can interfere with. Um, as we talked about earlier, the Installations are the places that we are executing mission from. And so that independence has a dual purpose that um, provides the security in addition to the ability to operate. Um, and natural infrastructure, of course, we, we talked about, but um, there is a tremendous opportunity to use the assets that are out there to ensure that we are providing uh, a resilient shoreline. Uh, against what we have seen as some of the nearest-term impacts of climate change. 
supply chain resilience and innovation is the fourth. And there is a place where we can reduce that tail, increase the ability to uh, have more choices when it comes to what we are producing, what we are using, what we are relying on uh, to make sure that we are able to operate in an efficient and effective way. Um, this is also where innovation comes in in partnership with our industry partners and others to really think creatively about how we anticipate and how we mitigate and how we adapt. Uh, lastly, enhanced mitigation and adaptation through collaboration. This is where partnerships come in. And this is everything from the community partnerships, uh, where we're able to find mutual benefit in our efforts to those partnerships that span the globe, where we can really take advantage of the lessons, the hard lessons that everyone is learning when it comes to combating climate change. And so those are, those are our lines of effort. I'll add that we have responsibility assigned throughout the Department of Navy uh, through my peers that are the other assistant secretaries and also through both the officer and enlisted uh, service representatives to make sure that we are taking a collaborative and comprehensive approach. Everybody has a responsibility at the Department of Navy to make sure that we are contributing uh, to our effectiveness in terms of reducing the threat and increasing our resilience. Ooh. Well, 350,000 active duty personnel, Tyler, in the United States Navy, another 100,000 in the reserves, uh, 290 about deployable combat ships, more than 2,600 aircraft Huge operation. As we joked earlier, it's a big department. It's, it's a big job, uh, Secretary <laughs> Berger. You've got your hands on. I'm curious about two things. One, uh, has Congress been uh, been uh, appropriately funding this initiative? Uh, how much money do you think the Navy will invest in the implementation of Climate Action 2030, your plan? And I got to ask, uh, there's a lot of rivalry between the Navy and the Army. You know, the Army-Navy <laughs> game, the uh, the uh, Defense Department has got a little bit of rivalry between the service branches. In good fun. My, my father and my younger brother were both uh, career military United States Air Force pilots. My brother was a submariner in the Navy, and I have two brothers who served in the Army during the Vietnam era, so a long track record of the military. And I know these guys talk to each other, so Secretary Berger... How much money did you get, and how does it compare to what the Army and the other services are getting for climate adaptation? We are carefully marking in the budget how we are, are spending for things that we have already put down for. So just over $700 million in the last budget request, but we are at the front end of this strategy. And so there is a lot more that we need to do in terms of baselining, metrics and objective setting to make sure that we are resourcing with intent um, to create a pathway to get to those clear objectives. And that is something that we are doing as a department over the course of the next 90 days. I mentioned that everybody has a job and we are, we are making sure that they do it as part of the team over the next course here. We'll come out with a campaign plan uh, for our climate action and we'll be able to drive 
towards those objectives purposefully and collaboratively. Uh, Army has put out a great strategy, and they're good partners uh, to be able to, to work together with this on. And so this is a place that uh, there's opportunity for collaboration, efficiency, um, and that's something that we are thinking about. But I will say there's also an opportunity to keep that rivalry up. And so keep your eyes peeled for some fun around Army-Navy. That will draw some more attention to uh, climate change and climate action. Why not? It's good. It's the good kind of competition, yeah. I like to see. Uh, and as long as they're driving in the right direction, who can object to that? Now, one thing that I, I just, you know, kind of zooming out and I'm just thinking here secretary Berger about <clears throat> some of the shows we've done and you know goodness the world I wasn't thinking too much about war fighting I have to be honest and then the, the world kind of changed here with this uh Russian invasion in Ukraine and yeah. Peter we've been you know way back before then we've we've been following what's going on in the Arctic and uh uh you know, the reason why I bring up the Russian invasion of Ukraine and war fighting is because I remember very distinctly the column and, you know, they couldn't move the tank. The Russians couldn't get the tanks off the yeah. road because the ground was uh, too muddy and, you know, the weather. And then there was a big snowstorm that really impact like weather and climate can absolutely impact yeah. fighting. And then the other thing I'm thinking about is like thinking into the future. And we have been we've done some shows on the Arctic and um, how Russia and specifically Russia, but China to a certain degree too, have been kind of planning ahead to a to sea routes that are changing. I mean, these are climate change-oriented yeah. shifts in the ice uh, pack yeah. that will open up new shipping routes. I mean, this is going to change the geopolitics, and this is why we have to think about climate change in big ways. Anyway, this is my opinion now, Secretary Berger, but if you could comment on kind of this kind of big picture of the global play, because... It's an it's a big frame that you know it, it can it can be a really big frame here like global this is global freaking climate change you know how this impacts national security is in all sorts of ways it's super complicated You are absolutely right and if there is is one thing that I hope that your listeners and and really in every conversation that I have uh, I hope people walk away understanding the bond that is there between the military mission, warfighting, and the impacts of climate change. Because as you noted in some of your comments, this is very tangible. This is very real. This is very present. Specifically on energy, you need look no further than the headlines to see that energy can be used as both a tool and a weapon. You noted a few places that energy has been used as a weapon, um, and what was weaponized was the dependency. <laughs> and so as we think about how to operate, how to execute mission, how to create that tactical advantage, it is reducing that logistics chain. It is making sure that we do not have that dependency um, any more than we need to, continue to look for ways to reduce it, and have that independence. Uh, that is how we have the opportunity to maintain that advantage uh, to fight and to win. You stay on station longer. You don't need that refueling. You create your own energy. Um, those are the tools that we have and that we are working towards, making sure that we are creating every single advantage. Um, as we think about engaging, it is on the fringes 
that we see the most impact. You mentioned the Arctic. Um, I had the opportunity to go to ISEX uh, just a couple of months ago, and it was incredible in so many ways. Uh, but one of the things that I saw there were the partnerships that exist, especially in the scientific community. So we are working with partners um, from several different countries, and we are collecting data both on uh, salinity level, temperature, uh, what the thickness of ice looks like in, in various places, where are we seeing these cleaves happen, where are the temperature changes so extreme that they're creating danger. How are those movements impacting our planning and our ability to stay where we are versus shifting our timing and our cost um, because there has been um, a need to move the ice camp mm. or a need to shift the operation? So very real-time lessons are happening there, but it's an important reminder of the importance of science and that these are some of the fringe and edge and again, tactical advantages that we can create with knowledge and information and the ability to anticipate because of what we have learned. Well, well, I, th I really like uh, the direction and the emphasis you're putting on the integration of this issue and an effective response to climate change as a fundamental national security objective and a fundamental national security issue. Um, this isn't, Tyler, just about being environmental and doing things for the environment, although I'm all for it. Um, this is about can the U.S. military operate effectively in changing conditions? Can we uh, reduce our dependence on certain fuels and be more, be, be more and, mobile and powerful as a force? I mean, this is right down the middle for naval operations and, and, and just, security. And, and it's also how do changing conditions change the geopolitical yeah. and and military threat conditions f from not only, you know, it's it destabilizes nations. It can cause migration. I mean, these are all things that can have yeah. domino impacts that we got to track. In it's in the national interest to absolutely pay attention to these things and yeah. understand what's driving them. One hundred percent. As Secretary uh, of the Navy Carlos de Toro mentioned, this is one of the most destabilizing forces of our time, and instability means tension. And it means the Navy and the U.S. military has to be on its toes. Uh, Secretary Berger, it is Climate Action 2030. It's 2022. Woo! That means uh, in the next eight years, this we're gonna plan, have to huff it. we're going to have to hook it. Um, can you talk a little bit about where this plan goes from here? It's obviously not, this is not one that's going to sit on the shelf. Where do you, where do you go forward uh, on the strategy from here? Sure. Action is the, the operative word in our in our short title here in 2030 is a close second because this is the decisive decade. And so we move forward purposefully. I mentioned that there is an ongoing effort across the department to get aligned to our objectives, to create the steps to get there um, from a resourcing and from a manpower and from a research perspective. We've got work to do on a bunch of fronts, but we do not have a choice. You were talking about how we uh, like the idea of, of helping the environment and um, making sure that we are doing things to save the planet. Uh, for us, the environment is where we operate. And so we think about the environment as the place that is a dependency for our readiness. 
And as we think about climate uh, impacts, you noted all of those places that we need to reduce our dependency to be better warfighters. Um, the added bonus is the planet is still here. And so these, these are the things that are driving us. None of them um, are anything less than fundamentally consequential. Um, the existential threat that we are facing is uh, very real, very present. And so we are moving through this decade because we do not have a choice to do anything other than that. Um, the alternative is is not something that is supportable. We're really going to be facing some dire consequences, um, worse than the ones that we already are. And so that is uh, what we're doing here. We're putting action to our words, uh, putting together the climate campaign strategy um, that I mentioned, or excuse me, climate campaign plan that we'll have together at the end of our 90 days. Uh, and then we will continue to iterate on these steps, um, updating that plan, updating our resourcing, making sure that we continue to drive forward where we find more opportunities with the benefit of more advanced uh, technology, more advanced alternatives, and more efficiencies. Well, that's, uh, that's the roadmap, and we're going to be paying attention every step of the way. And uh, Secretary Berger, I will just say right now, that you always have uh, a microphone here on the American Shoreline podcast or the American Shoreline podcast network more broadly to update our listeners about what is going on. We are thrilled to see this initiative. And we ha I have no doubt, Peter, that uh, there will be leadership coming from the Navy here that we will all look to and be inspired by, as has been the case throughout American history, we have looked to the Navy and borrowed technology and methods and all sorts of stuff that have become a part of common, regular American life. Uh, so I have no doubt that this will be the same way in the climate space. Uh, Secretary Berger, before we wrap up, I'd love to just get give you the last word. And if you wouldn't mind just talking to our listeners about uh, what they should be paying attention to uh, as the Navy moves forward on this or anything else you'd like to tell them. Sure. One of the most important things to pay attention to is that your Navy, your Marine Corps are partners in combating the climate crisis. This is something that impacts warfighting, mission, readiness, and for that reason it is a driving consideration and force in everything that we do. Uh, this is not a new thing for the Department of the Navy, for the Naval Forces but this is renewed, refocused, and an absolute priority as we head into this decisive decade. So please know that this is something that affects the military, it affects our national security. This is a consideration and an important one for our defense of our nation and the support that we give to our allies and partners. And we are, we are driving forward purposefully as we head into this next phase because we have no alternative but to succeed. I love it. Well, we wish you and your team at the, uh, at the U.S. Navy and in the Marine Corps all of the success in tackling this complex issue. Uh, we are so pleased to have you on the American Shoreline podcast. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, it is Meredith Berger. She is the assistant Secretary of the U.S. Navy for Energy Installations and the Environment and is the leader on the, on the Navy's uh, climate response strategy 
Uh, Secretary Berger, thank you very much for sharing your insights with our listeners on the American Shoreline Podcast. We sure appreciate it. 